the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, David's sin and lies continue to grow. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 13. Once again that's 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 13. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 13. And when David had called him, he invited him. He did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. Obviously, he didn't force him to drink. But the idea here is that he kept the alcohol flowing in the hopes that he would go and forget his convictions. I like what David Guzik said. He said, David was drunk with lust when he slept with Bathsheba. He hoped making Uriah drunk with wine would bring the same result. And yet, it says he went not down. At that evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. Uriah's resolve remains despite his intoxicated state. Some commentators have suggested that he was on to David, but the scriptures give no hint of this at all. It's very likely that Uriah was just a very principled man. And someone who values loyalty very highly. When I think about David eating and laughing and talking of old times with his friend all the while, trying to get him drunk to cover up his sin, my gut twists. This affair he had was a bad enough betrayal, but this, this one was just as bad because none of it was real. It was all a lie. And that's why the Bible has such strong language about lying. The word truth in the Bible, it almost always means that which is real, that which is genuine. A lie is the opposite of that. It's a fabrication, an unreality, something phony or fake, and therefore a deep betrayal of trust. And as that lie must be protected, eventually it must be populated with even more lies and betrayal. And so in verse 14, David doubles down again. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set you Uriah in the foremost of the hottest battle and retire you from him that he may be smitten and die. The idea is, David says, put put him in the the fiercest part of the battle where he's going to face the toughest Ammonite soldiers 
and then call the retreat when the battle's really rough. Command the rest of the army to retreat, leaving him exposed, that he may be smitten and die. David does not mince the words. I want him dead, and this is how I want you to do it. And thus David now adds to his adultery and to his lying murder. And in the ultimate betrayal, he sends the execution order in Uriah's hand. You ever wondered, I think weird things like this, but you ever wondered like where you see a car and barely miss you and you think to yourself, if I had maybe just hit the gas a little bit earlier, I'd be in an accident. Like have you ever wondered, like I think about these things all the time. Like maybe if I was here five minutes earlier or five minutes later, like I'd have been, you know, this would have happened or you think of all the things that could be, right? What if Uriah just opens up the letter? I mean, you hold, literally, your whole life's different at that point. It says a lot about Uriah's character that David knows his friend won't look at the orders. That Uriah would faithfully perform his duty even unto death. It also says a lot about what a person will do to cover up their sin. Compound or confess. That's the decision David is constantly faced with every time God thwarts his plans. But David keeps choosing to compound his sins. And so we get the sad story here in verses 16 and 17. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah a place where he knew that valiant men were, Ammon's elite soldiers. He assigned Uriah the place to hit that part of the wall. And the men of the city, they went out. So the Ammonites came out to actually initiate an attack, a sortie against Joab's troops laying siege. And they fought with Joab. And there fell some of the people, the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. We're going to get more details on exactly what happened later on. But for now, it just tells us that David finally succeeds. He finally gets one step of the cover-up fulfilled. Before David became king, he refused to kill the man who hunted his life. And he swore that he would be different than the man who threatened and murdered anyone who stood in the way of what he wanted. And yet here, David becomes just as bad as Saul, if not worse. This is indeed one of the lowest points in David's life, a true fall from grace, because he becomes the same as the tyrant before him. Remembered are none of the mercies that he would have loved to have had from King Saul. None of the peace, anything, anything, even just in David at one point, he says, just leave me alone. And Saul wouldn't even give him that. None of that's remembered here. As he brutally takes this man's life, even though he doesn't wield the sword. In light of this, why do we say that David is then a man after God's heart? Because this seems pretty bad, and it is. The reason the scriptures say that David is a man after God's heart is because this isn't how the story ends. Now, it is going to get darker before David emerges into the light. But the difference between David and Saul is David didn't remain in the dark forever. This brings up a truth that Many refuse to accept. We are all, in fact, Saul. We are all Saul. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's another side to this truth, though. And it's that God is not willing that Saul should perish, but that Saul should repent. 
And so time and time again, God sent prophets, messengers, individuals to Saul to call out his sin, to urge him to repent, to change. So the truth is this, while we all may be Saul, when we choose to repent like David did, the Lord does forgive us. And he begins the work of creating in us a clean heart so that we can be more like him. There is no such thing as an individual who is after the heart of God who's never been Saul. No such thing. And so while we can fault David for being at this point after Saul did all that to him, the truth is we are no different. And so if God can welcome me back, he can welcome David back too. I have heard many times from the lips of men when I've shared the gospel with them. So you're telling me that the criminal in jail who repents of what he did and puts his trust in Jesus will go to heaven, but I, the good father, the good husband, the good citizen, and the good worker will go to hell because I did not. And the answer to that question is yes. As offensive as that may be, because no one is good. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's an illogical question. There's no good people. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7 through 7 gives hope to the blackest of hearts, to the wickedest of men and women. 1 John 1, 5 says, This then is a message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Unless you can achieve that somehow on your own, then you cannot approach him. The scripture tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. He's perfect. None of us can measure up to that. And so what it comes down to is not being able to be like God in that sense on my own. To be light. To have no darkness in me. It's to come to terms with who we really are. And to come clean with God. Verse 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, then we lie and do not the truth. We're not practicing the truth. In contrast, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That word cleanses is in the present tense. It means it is continually washing us. Continually. David is a man after God's heart because he came back to the light. Despite the knowledge of what he had done and how vile it was, David refused to be defined by what he did in the past, and he trusted God to make him someone different in the present. And God did, because God abounds in mercy. Now, David is not there yet. And so, in 2 Samuel here, we say goodbye to a man of far better character than David at this point in David's life. But it's not a forever goodbye. We will see Uriah again, for he was a Gentile who loved God, was loyal to the Lord, his king, and his friends. And I believe someone who will be at the front of the line to receive his reward for faithfulness. I imagine when Uriah got to heaven and found out why he was there, there were probably some tears to wipe away. But I can promise you this, Jesus never gave him such orders or such notes to carry. And whatever Jesus gave to him, he knew he could trust. And if you've been betrayed, listen, 
Know this. The Lord will never betray you. There's always one you can trust in. Verse 18, the deed is done. So Joab sent, verse 18, and told David all the things concerning the war. And he charged the messenger, saying, When you have made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, and if it be so that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto you, Why did you approach so near into the city when you did fight? Do you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerobasheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Well, then, if he gets mad at you, tell him, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David, it actually turns out, ends up murdering dozens of other Israeli men in this gambit to murder Uriah. Many other men die in this whole thing. And so Joab knows that David's going to be upset about the report of the loss of troops. And Joab knew David well enough to know how the speech would go. When the guy comes in, he explains what happened. He goes, we lost a lot of men because this was what happened. That David, his normal reaction is going to be, Joab, what was he thinking? Did he forget what we learned in War 101 in college? Everybody learns a story. And he would quote the lesson about how from the war in Judges 9.53, where a woman killed, which is the most worst thing that could ever happen to you as a woman to kill you. You've come a long way, ladies. Where a woman killed Gideon's son. He was the very first self-proclaimed king of Israel. His name was Abimelech. And the reason that they did is because it says he came up to knock down the door of the tower that they're all hiding in the city, and she just dropped a rock on his head. Game over. This is basic training, Joab. So Joab's out when he anticipates David's eruption in anger for these bad battle tactics, is make sure you tell David that Uriah died in that assault. So verse 22, the messenger gives his report on how Uriah died. So the messenger went and he came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger sent unto David, surely the men prevailed against us. They overwhelmed us. The reason the casualties were so high, they overwhelmed us. They came out unto us in the field, and we were upon them under the entering of the gate. In other words, the battle started off good for us. They came out, and we pushed them back, and we had advanced so far as to get into the gatehouse. But the shooters shot from off the wall upon your servants, and some of the king's servants be dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Thus here we see how this man died. They advanced all the way into the gatehouse of the city, and if you've ever studied ancient gatehouses, they existed for the purpose of funneling troops. It was a narrow area, and you would funnel troops in there, and they'd just pelt you from the top of the wall with projectile devices. In this case, this would be a killing zone for their archers. And so we learn that it was in a moment when Uriah thought he might be winning the city for his king, for his friend that Joab called the retreat and left Uriah and the other men with him to be slaughtered in a killing zone with arrows. I would ask David how he slept at night knowing this, but the scriptures tell us he didn't. (laughs) In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, where after David repents, he talks about that time. He says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through all my roaring all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my moisture was turned into the drought of summer. In Psalm 38.3, David repeats this. He says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. I don't think David was getting sleep. 
I think this was probably one of the worst years of David's life. And thus Proverbs 28:13 is true. He who covers his sin shall not prosper, right? God knows how this works. Well, David's not out of the woods yet. The, the whole cover-up's not complete yet. Verse 25. Well, then David said unto the messenger, Thus shall you say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease you, be evil in your eye. For the sword devours one as well as another. I get it, Joab. Men die in war. When David says this to him, Let not this be evil in your eye. I don't think he was saying, Joab, I know you might be questioning what the morality of what I did. Joab, I probably is not questioning the morality at all. Joab himself was a murderer. So I'm not sure David's referring to that. I think he's referring to the setback in battle because the truth is this loss would have emboldened the Ammonites to fight harder and it would have discouraged the Israeli troops, which would make Joab's job more difficult. It's more like I think David expects Joab to think, you better have a good reason for this, buddy, because that was a stupid move. You made my job harder. And so David, I think, is saying, hey, there's a reason. I got my reasons. I think you of all people should understand that. The sword devours one man as well as another. People die. We're still going to win this thing. Make your battle more, more strong against the city and overthrow it, and you encourage him. It's funny. The message he even gives has got code language in there because make your battle stronger. Do better, Joab. Like it's not David's fault. So the messenger is going to be not know this at all. When the orders come down, Joab's going to tell him and say, listen, we're not going to do that again. We're going to do this from now on. And David's in the clear. And surely David is relieved to hear this news. But again, his work's not done if he's to successfully cover up the affair because the child is still coming and he needs to legitimize the child's birth. So verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Notice in verse 26, it does not even give her name. Scripture reminds us that she was a married woman. Reminds us that even though David seemingly gets away with this, he did not. Someone knew that she was someone else's wife. Now, the typical time for mourning is seven days. The phrase here where it mentions when the morning was past, which the word there past means when she crossed over the threshold of those seven days or whatever, something around seven days. As soon as she crossed over that threshold, that's when David takes this next action. He sent and he fetched her. The word here fetched, it just means to guide someone to an area. David doesn't waste any time on his next move because he knows the clock is ticking. Right after her morning officially ends, he invites her to the palace to make a proposal. And he tells her, the only way we get out of this alive is if you become my wife. And then everyone sees the child as, as mine. Correctly, but for the correct timing and all that kind of stuff. And David, Bathsheba agrees. And so she became his wife and she bare him a son. The phrase here that she bare him a son is the same exact language that is used for every other of David's children when they're born which the writer's giving to us here to indicate to us that the cover-up worked. Everyone viewed it as, oh, wow, what a blessing. You know, she lost her husband in brutal war, and now she's married the king, and now they're having a child, you know, and, and everything's going to be okay. Because the child would not carry on David's name, but according to Levitical law, he would carry on 
the name of Uriah, the family of Uriah. David's doing a a good deed for her. That's how everyone would view it. He's being that Leverite brother. And he's not a relative, but he's coming alongside and raising her status and raising up seed for Uriah. That's how everyone would see it. No one, no one would suspect any evil doing on David's part or Bathsheba's part. No one suspected an affair. And yet, can we really say it worked when the last words of the chapter are, but the thing that David had done displeased was evil in the eyes of the Lord. What David did, it may have not been evil in Joab's eyes, may not have been evil in David's eyes, and maybe even not possibly in Bathsheba's eyes. We have no clue on her perspective. But it was evil in God's eyes. And thus we have the beginning of Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen Again, he who covers his sins shall not prosper. But whosoever confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. I've quoted that verse quite a few times, and the reason is, is because it's important. The word prosper there, it's not live long and prosper. The prosper here is not be rich, not even be healthy. The word prosper here, it means to advance, to make progress, to move forward. He who covers his sins cannot continue moving forward you're going to start moving backwards. I can cover up my sin perfectly. I can pretend to move forward. But it will all be a sham because that will always lack spiritual progress. It will always be just a slab of mud dressed up like chocolate cheesecake. You might have the decorations. Server might even bring it out with a smile. But the reality is if you bite into it, It is not what you think it is. It is not moving forward. Now, instead of covering up our sin, let's live out the end of Proverbs 28, 13. But whosoever confesses and forsakes them their sins shall have mercy. What's mercy? Well, it's not getting what you deserve. What did David deserve? Death. What did Bathsheba deserve? Death. But God would have offered them better than that if they had come clean. Because when we confess and forsake our sin, we find mercy. Would have everything been easy? No siree. Sin has consequences. But they would have not gotten what they deserved. They would have experienced mercy. Mercy also in the Old Testament has another idea, God's loyal love. They would have experienced God's love. Instead, David repeatedly in the penitential Psalms talks about the heavy hand of God upon him, the absence of the presence of God in his life, feeling far from God and not being able to move forward at all. What we have in David's life is a lost year because he covered up his sin. No forward progress at all. Let's not do that. Let's live out 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only does he forgive us, but he begins to do surgery. The word cleanse is a medical term. It means to go into the wound and begin to heal it, to begin to do surgery on it, to 
It's actually the word we get like to cauterize a wound. God will begin if we confess our sins, not just to forgive us, but it'll begin to heal us and change us and make us more like him. Doesn't that sound better than not moving forward? <laughs> sure does. Let's pray. Lord, we see the standard. Your servant John said, these things are right unto you that you sin not. So Lord, we get it. And that's our goal that we're shooting for. But Lord, we, we also recognize that we do fail. We sin. Lord, if we say we have not sinned or we have no sin, then Lord, we're either deceiving ourselves or we're calling you a liar. So the reality is, we do fail. Still, John's writing to, to believers, to us. So the good news, Lord, is and we're so thankful for it, is that we have an advocate. You're our advocate. You who never fail. And you long to show us mercy, to forgive us, and to begin that work of cauterizing the wound, healing us, and changing us, Lord. Or teach us to run to your mercy. And even now, Lord, there may be some who are saying, Lord, I'm so sorry. Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm, I, I confess it and I want to forsake it. I, I choose to leave this behind and to walk in the light again. Lord, would you show them mercy and would you give them the courage to talk to whoever they need to talk to? Lord, that their lives might be lived in the light where we experience that mercy and grace and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.